Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a podcast about the Swift programming language and other projects at swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Smart. Before we start today, we'd like to thank our first sponsor, which is Sentry. Uh, as you know, all code is broken, but that's all right, because we can fix it together with Sentry. If you rely on your customers to report errors and you basically treat them like an off-site QA team, it's not good for your customers and it's bad for business. And ideally, you could solve this with tests, but we're pretty bad at writing tests as humans and programmers. And just because we're lazy and sometimes we forget something, we can't anticipate every single way our user is going to interact with our product. They might do something really, really smart or sometimes stupid that we didn't think about. And that's why Sentry tells you about the errors in your code before your customers have a chance to encounter them. Not only does Sentry tell you about them, they give you all the details you need to be able to fix them. You'll see exactly how many users have been impacted, the stack trace for a bug, the commit that caused the problem, and the person who may have been involved in uh, in last touching that bit of code. So where do you find them? You can find them at sentry.io slash four slash swift. Uh, once again, that's sentry.io slash four slash swift. Thanks to Sentry for sponsoring this episode. All right. And uh, today we're talking about build systems with a special guest, Keith Smiley. You want to say hi, Keith? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Keith, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, where do you work? What's your involvement in the industry? Um, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm an iOS engineer on the client tooling team at Lyft. Uh, and our team kind of owns everything related to how you build the app. So we own the like local development experience, uh, all the tools that go into that. Um, you know how the project is set up in Xcode on the iOS side, uh, the CI pipeline, um, release process, and things like that. Uh, I've got to say, as someone who is also an iOS engineer at Lyft, it's really nice to have a team of smart people who are actively working on that stuff, so that um, you know there there are constant refinements and improvements, so that uh, people who are working on features as part of the apps can really focus on. Uh, what they want to deliver, as opposed to uh, fiddling with um, build systems, which is a topic of this show's episode. Yeah, and you also are a core contributor to CocoaPods, correct? Uh, I was maybe in the past, um, yeah. but yeah, definitely not for the last like five years or so. Um, Got but, it. Yeah. You were the kind soul that was manually merging <laughs> pod spec pull requests. I'm not sure that people even understand that reference anymore, yeah. but yes, that was right. uh, a lot of fun. At you the merged time. many of mine. It was great. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to give some backstories to what that is? Uh, yeah. So a long time ago, uh, before pod trunk existed in CocoaPods, uh, the specs repo that holds all of the like definitions for CocoaPods was just a normal GitHub repo where people would submit pull requests and they would need to be merged so that everyone else could use them. And uh, my most most of my contribution to CocoaPods was merging pull requests on that <laughs> repo before there was like a lot of automated tooling around it. So it was very like manual and process, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Like I got to meet a lot of people in the community from doing that. It does sound sort of antiquated until you start to realize that all of Homebrew works this way still today, where you make some suggestions to how th things should be built, right? And then uh, you have you have people who are manually kind of saying, "Oh, see, I flaked here. Kick yeah, it again." Right. Uh, and then they merge it. 
Yeah, I think at that time, CocoaPods may not have even had CI at the beginning. So uh, it was definitely uh, interesting. Very different from today where everything's much nicer. Yeah. So this kind of brings us to uh, to our main topic for this episode, which is talking about build systems, um, especially in the context of Swift. Uh, but before we dive into that, we kind of need to lay some foundations here. Um, could you explain in a brief way kind of what is a build system, uh, and especially in how it relates to um, the kinds of projects that people build with Swift? Yeah, definitely. So I think for the purposes of this conversation, we'll talk about a build system as something that like takes your code, your Swift files, and your assets, like XC assets or something for an iOS app, and produces like the final IPA or whatever that you send to Apple. And it knows how to you know compile the Swift and do whatever it needs to do with the assets and knows where to put them in the final IPA and knows how to do the you know code signing and iOS case and all of those pieces. Uh, and then also knows how to do things like, okay, you changed one Swift file, I need to rebuild some subset of the app. How do I do that? And why wouldn't just the Swift compiler take care of all that, right? Why do we need a layer on top of the compiler that we call a build system? Mm, yeah, that's a good philosophical question. Uh, I'm not sure I have a, a great answer. I mean, I do think that there's a lot of like pieces in there for like from a separations of concerns point of view, where like you wouldn't want the Swift compiler like knowing how to compile XC assets and stuff because those seem very unrelated. Um, but I'm not really sure. Like, if you were designing all this from scratch today, maybe you would think about it differently. So then, all right, um, I get the separation concerns bit where you don't necessarily want you know, XC assets knowledge in your Swift compiler. But what if you're building um, something that's entirely all Swift, right? Like some sort of Swift command line tool? Would you compile it using just Swift C, or um, is there any purpose in using um, any sort of build system on top of that? Yeah. So one of the things that like Swift well, kind of does, but not really. And, and most traditional compilers don't is manage things like what files have changed. So what do I need to rebuild? Like if you look at more of the Clang model, uh, where it, it's much more strict like that, where you know you have one compiler invocation per file mostly, and uh, you need some higher level tool so that you only recompile like the C files that you changed. Swift because of how its incremental model works does have some knowledge of what files changed but still like if you have inter targets and stuff uh there the it wouldn't know about that and also if you have like multiple modules that kind of coordination is also done normally by a separate build tool where the compiler like just tries to do the bare minimum of you know given these files and these flags like produce an object file does swift just have kind of a single build system um that people tend to tend to look at or is is there more to the story than uh than maybe the the main build system that people have been exposed to if they're just building ios apps yeah so i guess we should talk about like some specific build systems in the apple ecosystem which would answer that so uh i'm gonna be kind of fuzzy i guess on the definition of build system because uh just for the purpose of this conversation but like swift package manager you know would come up as this but technically like swift package manager knows how to do a lot of the building but there's like an underlying tool that does the actual like execution and stuff but i think that's kind of a like too nitty-gritty for this conversation um so there's Swift Package Manager, you know, which you can use for a lot of command line tool stuff, not really for iOS. I mean, although there are some workarounds, I'm sure that's been discussed on the podcast before. Uh, and then there's Xcode Build, uh, which most iOS engineers interact with or, or maybe don't, but Xcode interacts with it. Uh, and it's kind of in an interesting state where it actually has two underlying build systems from since for the last few years. Um, the I guess they call it the legacy build system now. And then the new build system, which they 
call XC build under the hood, but you still call Xcode build from the command line to get to it. So um, oh, I didn't realize it had a new name. Yeah, the, okay. the underlying like frameworks and stuff, uh, and there's a command line tool called XC build under there, but you still always go through Xcode build, I assume, for just for backwards compatibility. So. Right. Yeah, call, calling a new version of something just the new Xcode build is such an Apple-style naming strategy that um, it becomes very confusing. They don't really think of us on podcasts trying to explain these things. Right. Remember, they released an iPad called the new iPad. Several times. Yeah. It ha- There were iterations it of just, the new iPad. Yeah. Uh, the best iPad. Yeah, thanks, Apple. All right, so we have Xcode build legacy. Uh, the new Xcode build, and then you mentioned Swift Package Manager. Um, and then under the hood, you mentioned XC build, uh, which is driving the new Xcode build system. Does it have anything in common with the Swift Package Manager? Yeah, so the underlying uh, tool for both of them is called LO build, which is actually part of the Swift open source project. Um, and that is the kind of dumber tool that just kind of knows how to execute stuff when things have changed and knows how to look for changes and stuff it actually has a little bit more logic than that like it does know some swift specific things but it's not really like it doesn't know anything about ios for example that's all mm. left up to uh xc build um or swift package manager for mac builds to like you know set up all the right command line flags depending on what you know platform you're targeting and <laughs> stuff like that so LO builds primary responsibilities are just tracking what files have changed and feeding those back into the compiler to like be recompiled. Yep. And doing like the general like execution of, you know, like how many compiler jobs do I spawn at once and, you know, making sure that all of that happens when the things change. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I think it, it's sort of responsible for coming up with a build plan mm-hmm. for how to build something from like very high level directives, like say build this module to here are all the flags that each compiler job will need every step of the way in order to get to the final result, right? Yeah, there's definitely a few levels of that where like if you look at the LL build description that's generated by um, SwiftPM, which is like in the dot build directory that the that SwiftPM produces or the dot debug, I always forget which one it is. Um, you can kind of see that it like passes along some of the flags around like, you know, Mac OS versions and like where is the Mac OS SDK just so it can find like the headers for app kit or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, yeah, like it then takes that and, you know, either appends those or does whatever transformation it wants to get your actual compiler invocation. So like there's kind of a gray area there of like which one is responsible for what. Sounds really easy. Um, so is that the end of a story when it comes to uh, all the build systems that are capable of building Swift things? Yeah, so there are some like third-party um, build systems as well. So um, the both Google and Facebook have their own build systems uh, that are very, very similar because they're all kind of derived from this idea of this internal build system at Google that was called Blaze that started a long time ago. Um, But now both of these other two are open source. Um, Buck is from Facebook and Bazel is from Google. Um, And both of them kind of uh, have the goal of building every single language that is supported at those companies uh, within reason. And it's also kind of a weird state because like the projects are open source, but the companies are using kind of internal forks of it. So there's like a gray area between like what it actually does in the public version that we can use. Um, but the, both of those tools are meant to be kind of like extensible so that you can add other language support in and then build other things. 
Right. And if you're not Facebook and Google, why would you ever be interested in the fact that these things exist if you're not trying to build, say, like all of Facebook's uh, entirety of their code base or all of Google's entirety of the code base in all languages? Yeah. So uh, I guess the build system is like very intertwined in the workflow in general of iOS development. Right. So like as an iOS engineer, you may not think about like Xcode build day to day, but in Xcode, every time you hit build or run, like we're going through here. And so if you kind of want to add any features to that and we can talk about like why you might want to do that you know you're kind of on the ios side kind of locked into what you're getting from apple or what kind of extensibility or like you know you can flip some build settings here and there but like fundamentally that's not going to change um a lot and with some of these other build systems they offer kind of more advanced features that might be nice for a, a larger company with more engineers so specifically some of the big draws for us um at, at lyft is that um, you know, we want some of these advanced features, like for example, Bazel offers a way to do remote caching. And what that means is that if you build something on your machine, instead of me having to build it on my machine, I can just download your version of it because I know that if I did the same, you know, build command, I'd end up with the same binary. So save my CPU cycles and get on to building something else sooner. Um, and that's not really something that like Xcode build provides and it would be probably pretty difficult to like fit that into the workflow of Xcode build in general. So just since there aren't really any extension points for that kind of really advanced feature. Yeah. And I think, I think that's reasonable actually. I think people hate on Xcode build a lot, but it's like, I think that works for the vast majority of people. And it's only like these massive companies with, you know, one gig IPAs that uh, need this kind of feature. Yeah, definitely. I think that you definitely wouldn't want to just like jump into an, I, I'm, external build system for fun right like we right. definitely we have like two people working full-time on the ios side of this only and so i mean it's definitely been a lot of work and like so it's a big risk and big reward thing that we can do because we have you know 70 ios engineers and mm -hmm. not, not just one or two right and jesse when you say one gig ipas is that just a really bitter beer <laughs> yeah exactly gotcha okay. yeah i'm just trying to make sure i understand the lingo um, so say, you know, WWDC is coming up, uh, by the time listeners are listening to this, it may have already started. Um, what happens if, uh, you know, for example, Xcode build adds remote caching, um, for Xcode 11 come June? Yeah, that's, uh, definitely a great question. It's definitely a hard thing for us to balance. I think when we're like planning for projects like this or to like make m large migrations is like, how much are you betting against Apple or for them? Um, yeah, I think that on our side, we've decided that like the effort is worth not having to wait to get some of the benefits because we also don't know if we ever get them. So we're kind of betting on like, we just don't know. But there are also some other advantages, like that's a really big one that we want. But uh, another example that you kind of like hit sooner and maybe you don't have to switch the build system for, but it might help with that is like developers working on Xcode projects in general. So something we've done for a long time at Lyft is like generate our Xcode project using this open source project called Xcode Gen. And we kind of did that because, uh, you know, conflicts is something you hit very quick with Xcode projects. You just add a file, someone else adds a file. Now you have to deal with that. People like look at that file and they don't really understand the format and they don't really know what to do. So that's kind of a pain. Um, but then also if you want to have like kind of any standardization over the project, you know, people can kind of go and change build settings all over the place and you may or may not see that happening. So if you generate this project, you can kind of pull the source of truth into these more textual configs that are much more like diffable and like writable by humans, uh, which is what Xcode Gen helps you do. And this is just like kind of the default model for some of these other build systems uh, like Buck or Bazel, uh, where you write these like build files that are you know formatted in this 
you know, dependent on the build system. And then uh, that's like your definition of the build, which is a nice way to do that. I think that even if we could get some of these other features like remote caching from Xcode build, like that's something that we definitely want today. And we wouldn't have to, you know, switch to Bazel for that, but that did uh, like help with that as well. So are you guys currently using Bazel or still in the process of transitioning or? Yeah, so we use Bazel builds for like all of CI and all of our release builds. Locally, we use Bazel to generate an Xcode project with Xcode Gen as the like kind of intermediary. And that's what developers use. So they're still building locally with Xcode build. So they're not getting the benefits right now of the uh, remote caching and stuff, mm -hmm. but that's something we're like actively working on. The biggest piece there that probably isn't worth spending a lot of time talking about is like the just getting the IDE to like function at all with an external build system is pretty tough mm -hmm. and how that relates to like code completion and syntax highlighting and all that stuff right so along those lines actually i'd love uh i'd love to know what you think or what you would love to see um in the swift projects and, and all of the related projects that could better support these alternative build systems you know you mentioned that um you know on the xcode side having ide integration like syntax highlighting is, is tricky um but you know at every layer of that stack, whether it be the Swift compiler, um, LL build, uh, the Xcode build build system, or the IDE, you know, what would you like to see that could better support not just um, kind of what Lyft is looking into with Bazel, but in general, these alternative build systems? Yeah, so this may be a cop-out answer, but I would say like more things being open source is a huge win. Um, specifically, while migrating to Bazel, like I've submitted like 150 PRs upstream to like improve the build system on the Bazel side, which like obviously benefits everybody uh, who who's using Bazel. And it would be really amazing for more pieces like that to be open source as well. I mean, obviously Swift PM and LL build is, and that's fantastic. But it'd be great to see more of that stuff. I know that's a really like hard thing for Apple. I'm not saying they should just like flip a switch, but that would be really amazing. Um, but besides that, I do think there's some like interesting things moving. So the source kit uh, LSP thing is really interesting because that could open the door to like better external build system support just everywhere. Uh, and that was something that was mentioned in the original announcement was like in the future supporting Bazel with that. And that could be really interesting, I think, because that could open the door for you know you being able to realistically use other editors uh, if you wanted to, um, which might be nice. Who knows? Uh, but it would at least be interesting to see like if if everyone didn't feel like they had to use Xcode, like how that would change the community. Yeah, SourceKit LSP here being uh, the Swift backend for the language server protocol, uh, which is an open source project, both SourceKit LSP and the language server protocol, which kind of provides a backend for um, IDE-like features so that any editor can kind of tap into that. So things like code completion or um, documentation, like docstring, um, quick help generation or things like that. Um, so yeah, it's cool to know that uh, that as part of that project, um, the people working on it have expressed interest in supporting all sorts of build systems. Uh, there's one more um, kind of build system that recently added supports for, for Swift that I'd love to touch on, which is CMake, uh, which is an, an extremely widely used um, build system, typically for, for C and C++ style projects. But um, recently, uh, the, it was announced that the, the official CMake tool actually added support for, for Swift. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And kind of what do you think that means in general for kind of the proliferation of build systems that support Swift? Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I, I saw that announcement. I was kind of like not super surprised because I do feel like CMake wants to support everything. I feel like CMake is kind of uh, 
it, it has the ideal build system thing in mind. We, I mean, we haven't talked about it at all, but it's really interesting because it's supposed to support like a whole bunch of languages and then a whole bunch of like lower level execution tools. So you can you write your configs in this like higher level CMake language, and then you make CMake generate configs for a lower level tool that actually does the building. So if you've ever built the Swift project, you see this with Ninja is like normally the recommended one because it's really fast. Uh, you can also generate like make files with just like the normal Unix make command or Xcode projects, which is pretty interesting. Um, so I think it's definitely a really nice idea. I think that I find CMake very unapproachable compared to some of these other tools, especially once you kind of uh, know how to use them a little bit. I think that like um, reading Bazel configs and like trying to understand the entire build has been a little bit easier for me than doing that with CMake. Um, but maybe that's just a little bit of less a less standardized kind of like configuration or just we, we didn't really talk about specifics, but Bazel's like very strict about how you set up your project uh, so, so that it can guarantee that like building the same thing on two machines will be the same for some of these remote caching benefits. So I feel like it's easier to read because like, you know, it can't be doing anything crazy, like reading environment variables or like, you know, check to see where stuff is installed and, and things like that. Um, so I found CMake kind of difficult to look at, but uh, I do think it's nice that people who are already using it for their C++ projects in theory could like start integrating Swift, but I'm not really sure if that changes the game for any of these other build systems. I do think that uh, maybe this is an unfortunate reality, but like with these larger companies working on build systems, I think it's pretty hard to bet against it. Like the Bazel team has like over 150 people or something like actively working on different parts of Bazel. So that, you know, I don't know what the active contributor list is like at CMake, but Bazel is improving like very quickly. So I think it's also kind of hard to bet against those other tools, but. Right. Well, one, one interesting thing is like all these tools, they have like their own, own incentives to like keep maintaining and like uh, building out like their own tool set. Right. So for one to uh, like seed ground to the other, it doesn't seem like super possible. Like Facebook isn't just going to throw a buck away and say, oh, we'll use Bazel instead. Right. Yeah, I yeah, I didn't really mention that, but like yeah, to start with Bazel, it's not like we started from scratch. Like there was a mm -hmm. whole bunch there and a whole bunch open source because uh Google is using it for their own internal stuff. So, right. you know, we had to change some stuff because sure our project's a little bit different from Google, but like so much was already there. Then but and they're going to continue supporting that of course because they build, you know, 100 iOS apps or whatever. So, that is definitely all right, and we'd like to thank our second sponsor for this show. Um, that is Clubhouse, which is the first project manage management platform for software development that brings everyone on every team together to build better products. Uh, Clubhouse provides the perfect balance of simplicity and structure for better cross-functional collaboration. It's fast and intuitive interface makes it easy for people on any team to focus in on their work on a specific task or project, while also being, being able to zoom out to see how that work is contributing towards a bigger picture. With a simple API and robust set of integrations, Clubhouse also seamlessly integrates with the tools you use every day, getting out of your way so that you can deliver quality software on time. Uh, if you're interested, you can visit clubhouse.io slash Swift Unwrapped. Um, Keith, I have a question. Uh, you know, if someone is not working at the Lyfts and Googles and Facebooks of the world, you know, at what point... Um, do you think iOS developers should really start to consider using alternative build systems? You know, is it a matter of scale? Is it a matter of uh, complexity? Yeah, I would 
definitely say that you wouldn't want to consider it until you had people that you could dedicate to work on tooling because I do think it's a really like hard thing to transition to and then it's an ongoing support uh, burden. Um, you know, obviously we've decided that that trade-off is worth it, but like you've kind of alluded to before, like at WWDC, even if something big doesn't change, like things will change and that will require us to make updates or Google to make updates to Bazel. And it's nice that that happens in the open, in open source and there's like a community around it, but there's definitely still a support burden there. So I would definitely like say that people shouldn't move until they could like take that on and know all the trade-offs by doing that. And I also think there's a lot of stuff you can do before that that can probably like improve the actual pain points you're hitting. So, you know, we talked about Xcogen a little bit. That's one where I think that that like alleviates a huge piece of the things that are pain with Xcode. And, you know, sure, switching to Bazel might help with some of that, but also you can do this and like still use Xcode build and that'd be great. Um, another thing that we had done also before moving to Bazel that I think was an improvement was moving to like pre-compiled third-party dependencies so that you just didn't have to, you know, rebuild those every time you did a clean and you just downloaded the most recent version. Uh, some people, depending on how they use Carthage, might already get that benefit, but uh, that's not something people really get from CocoaPods right now. But uh, I think that's a huge win too. So I think there's like a lot of incremental things you can do and you should do way before you consider, you know, switching build systems, unless you have some other like external pressure of like, if you did work at a company where everyone's like already using Bazel or something for the web stuff, maybe it makes some sense uh, because you already have a lot of expertise and you already may have people dedicated to that, but that's, that hasn't been the case at Lyft. Uh, one last question on my part. Um, so you mentioned 150 pull requests uh, towards Bazel. That's that's awesome. Contributing back to open source, uh, really fantastic. Um, have you had any opportunities to contribute back to um, some of the Swift-related projects that are open source uh, in order to better support integration with third-party build tools? Yeah, so uh, the other person on the iOS side on my team, Dave Lee, has spent some time uh, contributing back to some of the LLVM toolchain, uh, which definitely falls under that. Uh, so one of the interesting things with a uh, build system like Bazel, where you're building remotely, or, or you kind of consider it building remotely because it's built on one machine and then downloaded to your machine is that that affects how you debug things because the debug info of these binaries like often bakes in absolute paths to things that won't exist if you download it from another machine. So there have been some patches from the Google folks and a few from Dave there that for that kind of thing. Um, and there's also been some like Swift changes to support that as well. Like there's a new in Swift 5.0, there's like a new flag called F debug prefix map. Um, Actually, without the F, the F is the Clang version, but the and that like lets you rewrite these paths to something, and then you can rewrite them again in LDB, so it knows where to look for this like debug info. Uh, so some of those changes have happened in Swift recently, which has been great because it adds much better support for this. I don't think we really could have done this before having those fixes. Yeah, it's great, um, and and goes to show that the more build systems kind of become main, mainstream, the more kind of the work on one can probably help the work on others. Like if you've used Carthage with pre-built binaries before, you've probably hit this issue where um, you know some debugging starts to fail if uh, the paths on the machine that built the binary are different than the one in which you're debugging. So uh, presumably this is something that could be used to help uh, address things, not just for Bazel, but for um, the, the industry at large. Cool. I think that's all we have for this episode. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped. And you can find me at Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me on Twitter at SimJP. Uh, Keith, where can people find you? Um, on Twitter, at uh, my last name and my first name, that's Smiley Keith. 
Cool. And uh, thank you again to Clubhouse for sponsoring. You can find them at clubhouse.io slash Swift Unwrapped. And to Century, century.io slash four slash Swift. Thanks for listening.